where we're going to find our future solutions is the blend of science and policy. Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. When you think about those 40 million people and the $1.4 trillion economy and the 5 million acres of irrigated farmland that rely on that, that's a lot of, lot of pressure. Hello, and welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health about how they are tackling big challenges in these three areas. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, and I am joined today by Becky Mitchell, the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Welcome, Becky. Thank you, Jocelyn. So happy to be here. Happy to have you. As director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board, Becky carries out the policies and directives of the board relating to conservation, development, and use of the state's water resources. Becky has been director for four years, and prior to that was the water supply planning section head. Becky worked as a water policy and issues coordinator within the State Department of Natural Resources. Becky has both her bachelor's and master's in engineering from the Colorado School of Mines. Becky, can you start us off by describing what the Colorado Water Conservation Board is? What exactly is it? What is it charged with doing? Really, CWCB was created... um over 80 years ago as the state's uh, water information resource and and really has developed into the state's primary water policy agency. Um, it's, it's one of the agencies within Colorado Department of Natural Resources. It's governed by a board. Um, the, uh, some of those are governor-appointed board members and state officials. Um, and that includes the DNR director, Dan Gibbs, and myself. Um, on that board. And really our focus areas um, include interstate water issues um, because our rivers and lakes cross our state boundaries, um, stream and lake protection, otherwise known as our in-stream flow program, um, our water supply planning, um, which um, I hope folks know about our Colorado water plan, but that falls under that section. Um, watershed and flood protection, which includes, um, unfortunately, a lot of wildfire restoration efforts right now. The CWCB plays a, a number of roles. You just outlined for us a, a several big buckets, no pun intended, of, mm-hmm. of work that you all do. What has been keeping you most busy recently? And maybe what are you most proud of in terms of your recent work with CWCB? So I think what's keeping us most busy now um, is the suite of issues that we have going on between um, drought, wildfire, flooding now. It's not one thing. It's the uh, combination and the culmination of all of those things coming together um, and and really putting us in a position of having to step up. And so when we talk about what I am most proud of, I would think um, it really is about how the agency has been able to evolve and step up in areas that maybe we weren't um, designed when when the CWCB was originated. I don't believe that um, folks were thinking about the watershed health and the impact that that had and um, and how that affects everything and, and being able to adapt um, and be there for water users and the people of Colorado and the resource of Colorado um, and changing the way that we do things to change with the times, I think is what I'm most proud of. That's great. So very adaptable, very um, cross-disciplinary, 
um, which makes a lot of sense given that water impacts so many different sectors and areas of work um, within the state. So can you say more about that integration role? Um, you know, how you all might connect someone in agriculture and someone in industry or business and someone in policy. I mean, you do so much work that brings brings different people together. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, we we like to call projects multi-beneficial projects, but, but really a lot of um, kind of making that into simpler terms, it's really about bringing different interests together and and looking for common goals. And so um, when we talk about agriculture and the environment, there's ways that we can um, do better for agriculture while at the same time uh, focus and do better for the environment and the resource and um, while all providing um, a municipal water supply. And so um, I think when we talk about multi-beneficial, it is about that integration and integration across sectors. Is there a favorite example you have of some win-wins across different sectors? Uh, I think there are so many. A lot of the work that's happening right now with um, agricultural transfer mechanisms and and, um, that Though that work and how um, we have landowners working right alongside with um, in environmental entities, I think those are probably the the um, the projects that get me most excited. You described in your early comments when you were describing what CWCV does and and what you're most focused on right now. It's it's really hard to say one thing because there is so much happening. We are really facing a lot of pressures around water in the state of Colorado. Can you say a little bit about Colorado specifically? We are one of two headwater states, the other being Hawaii, and we can talk more about that later. I know that's your home state. So what is the significance of Colorado being a headwater state? And then when you're looking at that suite of challenges that we are facing right now, how do those two things interface with each other? I think being a headwater state um, provides a lot of opportunity and a lot of pressure. And so when you think about the 40 million people that rely on the Colorado River, that is um, that is a lot to think about. And so the Colorado River flows over 1,400 miles through seven states and Mexico. And so um, it, when you think about those 40 million people and the $1.4 trillion economy and the 5 million acres of irrigated farmland that that rely on that that's a lot of lot of pressure and uh, the way that we operate um, has influence on on all of that and what we do is going to have influence and um, being the headwater state means we we really are the first you think about the water that originates in Colorado, um, a lot of it flows out. So um, we are supplying for more than just ourselves. And so um, the Colorado River starts in Colorado. It comes from our snowpack, from our mountains and um, the mountains in Colorado. And um, that that start point really makes us uh, in the lead position. A lot of folks think about Colorado and they think about snowy mountains and they think about skiing and they don't really think about the fact that people who are up there skiing in February are skiing on the our largest reservoir and one of the biggest sources of water, um, yes. not only for Colorado, but in North America, right? This is a huge reservoir that's, that's trapped in that snowpack. Um, 
And so being the headwaters, which headwaters means the start of a river, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so in some ways, our headwaters is really that snowpack, and it feeds a lot of different rivers and, and water bodies that flow outward from, from the state. When you think about the fact that we have this this maybe additional responsibility as a headwater state, when so, to your point, there are seven states, Mexico, so many people, uh, so much economic impact of, of the Colorado River. Can you tell us a little bit about how you interface with those other states? You, you mentioned that the CWCB plays an interstate role. Can you say a little bit more yeah, about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, along with heading up the Colorado Water Conservation Board. I'm also appointed by the governor as Colorado's river commissioner uh, for the state. So as the commissioner, uh, I am the one responsible for working with the um, the other basin states as we look towards the future. And so um, right now we're in a point of time where we're looking at renegotiating how Lakes Powell and Mead operate into the future. Currently the guidelines, they're, they're often referred to as the um, 2007 guidelines or 07 guidelines, they're they're set to expire in 2026. And so we're in the process of of really starting to look at, okay, what does the future look like and how um, those reservoirs are operated? It's important to remember, though, that we don't get a supply from that. When we talked about being that headwater state, there is not a reservoir above us like, like there is um, for the lower basin, like Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Um, in the upper basin state, which is Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, um, we're we're really focused on that that snowpack supply, and uh, and so it it creates a situation where we we need to figure out how to manage for the future. And when we're when we're seeing the hydrology that we've seen the last twenty years, and we're looking at the impacts of climate change, we really have to um, go forth with. Um, with all of that in mind and know that um, it's going to be tougher than it has been before. And so that's how we, we really are beginning um, those discussions of what does our future look like in the whole entire Colorado River Basin. So um, just take a step back to describe the Colorado River a little bit, right? So as we've been talking about, the there's this reservoir in our snowpack. Mm-hmm. As that snowpack melts, it flows into the upper basin of the Colorado River, which includes Colorado, Arizona, Utah, and Wyoming, and then into the lower basin, which includes Arizona, California, and Nevada. We should talk a little bit about what's going on in the lower basin right now, because we are sitting here talking the the day after the federal government put some restrictions on the Colorado River in the lower basin. Mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more about what the significance of that particular moment in time is? Definitely. So yesterday was a, a, a long day, and part of that came from the first ever shortage declaration um, by the Department of Interior um, for the Colorado River Basin, basically the the lower basin states. And so that was triggered by levels in Lakes Powell and Mead and um and really a pro it's a proactive step to um to help us remedy the the um that situation. So, but that being said, it, um, it wasn't completely unexpected. You know, there was the drought contingency plan in 2019 that the seven basin states, along with, um, the department of interior and the Bureau of Reclamation signed, um, with that specific goal of reducing risks associated with drought. So that included, um, these, um, 
falling elevations in, in Lakes Powell and Mead. So unfortunately, we've had to start using those provisions um, outlined within the plan. Um, although it's not unexpected, it is still unfortunate. We never wanted to be in this situation. So um, we continue to see those severe drought conditions and um, falling water levels. So the first step, and, and we were a part of that, was to release specific amounts of water from the upper reservoirs. We're seeing that in Colorado's own Blue Mesa Reservoir. Um, and so there'll be releases from, from that, that's, that's already started occurring, um, Flaming Gorge and then also Navajo Reservoir. I mean, this is really a, a fascinating situation with the Colorado River. And I do want to talk about other things other than the Colorado River, but it's so important and so present right now, um, that, that what we're, what we're seeing and, and what you and, and your team are managing is, um, a combination of the, of the need to use less and also to move the water around more, mm -hmm. right? So um, what you just described were, was the release of some water from the upper basin to the lower basin at the same time that the lower basin is also facing restrictions on how they use that water once it's there or the water that's already there. So what are some of the restrictions that, that, those, that those lower basins are going to need to implement? Are, there, are they things that we are also doing here in Colorado? That's each state kind of manages how how they deal with their allocation. And so from my understanding, Nevada has already taken steps uh, in Arizona. There will be less water that's going into the groundwater system for recharge. I see. Okay. So maybe we can talk a little bit too about, um, obviously the Colorado river, it feels like this very big complicated math equation with lots of different, um, people who have responsibility for different pieces of it. And, and that's playing out on a really large scale. Maybe we can take it down a little bit to talk about what it is that's happening at a smaller scale, both within the state of Colorado, but also how you are seeing individual companies or individual people, reacting to the to the situation that we're in right now, which is it's hotter, it's drier, we have less. So let's talk a little bit about Colorado first. We have a state water plan, the Colorado Water mm -hmm. Plan. How was it developed and what are some of its primary features? So I, I, that is uh, one of the things that I was most proud of from a little bit of, uh, ago. And, and really that was developed a, basically a grounds up process where we looked at the different um, basins across the state and um, and really said to the basins, okay, you determine what your future looks like. Let, let us talk about what's most valuable in the areas um, across the state because um, the South Platte may be very different from the North Platte and the North Platte may be very different from the Arkansas Basin um, and the Arkansas may be very different from the Southwest or the Yampa or the Gunnison. And so... Um, those are all rivers in Colorado for those of you who don't know. <laughs> Becky just has them roll off her tongue because she's so used to talking about them, but those are the different, some different river basins and watersheds in the state. Well, and all the while we still have the metropolitan area, mm -hmm. which, which, um, a lot of that resides in, um, the South Platte basin, but, but is, it's kind of, um, got its own features. The plan is really by the people for the people. And it's, it says, let's, let's do this together. And so that's really what the plan does and, and, and lays out some goals. Um, there's almost, I think like about 300, um, individual metrics in, in, the, um, the original water plan, but, but really 
nine main objectives that are that we're looking to move forward at the same time, at the same pace. And, and that includes um, preserving agriculture and, and conservation and, and looking at um, more storage opportunities and, and prote- all the while protecting the environment and recreation. And, and so I, I think it's really a by the people, um, for the people movement to the future. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm struck by is in your description of it being a, a plan that everyone came together to create and needs con- need to continue to come together to implement. Um, and then as you scale up, also, we are working together across state boundaries. So um, it feels to me very much like water in the West is, is something where collaboration can happen, but that isn't always the case, right? Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those collaborative successes, um, and where there's maybe still room for, for work? Where we can use collaboration. I think that's the the best way. And, and the water plan is an example of that. I think, um, when you look back at the history of it, um, and some of the nervousness, it came out through, um, then Governor Hickenlooper, um, through executive order, like the directive to do it. And if I could tell you, um, the kind of the messaging that, that people were saying after that executive order came out versus the message that, that, um, we're hearing now where they're invoking the water plan. There was, there were many skeptics and, I think that's a perfect example of collaboration where it was the administration was taking a leadership role and saying this this needs to be done. We need to plan better for our future. We were one of the last Western states to have a formal water plan. And so but but saying that and and people being extremely nervous about it and but building it in a way where they're invoking its name as we move towards the future, I think is, is a perfect example of collaboration. Right. And it shows the buy-in that people had, right. They felt that it reflected what they were telling you all as the CWCB that they needed and was most important. So I only hear from people what a great example the Colorado Water Plan was of collaboration, particularly given that, that it was a, re- a contentious issue up until then that, then could we replicate it in other sectors, right? That, that collaborative approach. Well, and I think one of the things that was so interesting about Colorado's water plan was the initial skepticism to um, the public comment period. And and the way that that occurred, um, we got over 30,000 public comments on Colorado's water plan. But I think more importantly was what we did with those. And, and I think when we talk about creating buy-in, it's showing that people's voice matters and how do you show that? And so when people saw that their comment made a difference and could point to where it made a difference, I think that that was a huge piece of um, the buy-in that still exists for, for planning for our future through Colorado's water plan. Yeah, absolutely. That transparency of your own impact and really mm-hmm. seeing your, your thoughts reflected as, you know, local experts in, in what the water challenges are, um, across the state, being able to see their own impact is really important. 
Becky, can you tell us a little bit about what you're focused on now? What, what are your goals for the next year? I know the water plan is in implementation yes. and revision mode. So we're obviously still focused on Colorado River and with the, the drought situation that we're in, even though it seemed like we were very wet on the eastern slope, we are still um, very dry on the western slope of Colorado. So we're very focused on that. But really, it's important to note that um, the water plan is a living document and that it, it, it doesn't just stop because you have one, we, we constantly are trying to improve and learn more and use the best science available. And so we're in the revision stage. So keep an eye out for that. We have, um, uh, links on our webpage and, and you can, uh, keep uh, looking and giving input and attending meetings and being a part of being a part of the future. Thank you. And, you know, you described the original drafting creation of the of the Colorado Water Plan and how you needed people's voices for that. That is no different now as you look to revise. Right. So really encourage people to engage. You will see your ideas and voice reflected in what the CWCB creates as part of this revision. So speaking of voices related to water, um, can we talk a little bit about diversity in the water sector? So as I think you know, one of the goals of the SPUR campus is to um, increase the diversity of um, backgrounds and minds and voices and skill sets in, in these different fields of food, water, and health. Um, can you talk a little bit about the how diverse is the water sector now? Um, what what are you doing to increase diversity of all kinds? And is there more that that we collectively and maybe we as a university could be doing? I love all of those questions. And so I think when we talk about first and foremost, how diverse is is kind of the water community now, I think it has definitely progressed. Um, I always say if we want to look at things differently, then we have to talk to different people. And so that's been a big push, um, not only of myself, but um, through the administration. So in, in March of 2021, um, the Department of Natural Resources announced the establishment of the Water Equity Task Force. It included 20 Coloradans um, from across the state who have unique perspectives um, that and represent diverse groups. And so the purpose of that task force is to help the state better understand equity, diversity, and inclusivity challenges in water issues and ultimately help inform the next um, Colorado Water Plan so that it's truly representative of all the state's people. Um, Beyond that, though, when we think about how how can you all play a role? How can everybody that's listening play a role? Um, I think the best way to address equity and inclusivity in um, water issues is for our state officials, our local leaders to connect young people to water and, and get them invested in it and get them passionate about it. Um, we should be blending water issues into um, school curriculums, um, other youth programs, um, so they understand it, feel closer to it, know where their water comes from, and really have a passion to make a difference in that in that sector. So that may um, inspire a more diverse and open-minded group to be future water leaders. And I hope that we can all be an example of of including folks in and uh, being a part of that change. I I think being being a woman in water and and uh, being quite frank that the the stats weren't as equal as they are now and uh, when I started in this this business and 
to watch that transition and watch the way that it has, I think, positively impacted the way we're planning for the future, I think is a good thing. And we need more of it. I couldn't agree more. And I think given the critical nature of water, we should feel inspired to tackle this big challenge. And there's no way we can do it without diverse voices at the table that are going to bring different perspectives and different solutions that we haven't yet thought of. So appreciate your thinking on that. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about about you and oh, about wow. how you got where you are. Um, so one of the things that the Spur Campus is interested in doing is um, introducing young people to careers they might not have thought about. Careers in water, to your point, is one of the areas that we're interested in connecting young people to. The other thing we're, we want to do is to show young people that they can do these jobs, right? That the what what does the pathway look like? Let's take some of the mystery out of how you become mm-hmm. the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Tell us a little bit how you got here. I I think there is no direct path. If folks hear anything today, I I think that you can change your path and you can change your path at any time. I I would say mine was as circuitous as anyone's for sure. Uh, I always had a bit of a science mind and and was focused on that. I never dreamed that I would be doing the things that I am doing now, uh, but I am so happy that I am. And, and um, I think part of it was being open to change and being open to your previous thoughts about what your future looked like changing. And so um, my background was engineering for sure. And and I thought I would be sitting in an office designing and um, not talking to many people. And now pretty much what I do is talk to people all day. But um, it, it really went from kind of an engineering role and looking at policy and trying to make things different and um, and saying there's better ways to do things that led me to where I am right now. Bachelor's degree, did you go straight to the master's or was there some work in there? No. And so I'm, I'm going to fully disclose like all of my dirty laundry, oh, but um, you get it all. It took me about um, nine and a half years to get my bachelor's. So I, I kind of did things a little bit backwards. And um, so I had a couple kids by the time I got my bachelor's and um and five kids when I got my master's, but I went to, um, I, I, I did my bachelor's and, and went right into, um, the field and, and working and, and in consulting and some work came up that, that made me feel like I want to do some more research. And, and so I went and got my master's at the same time that I was working. And that took a, took a few years. A lot of folks can do it in, in just a year or two, but, um, took a few years and, um, and I did it while I was working the whole time, but I got to choose and having had a little bit of time working, it helped me decide what I wanted to focus on and what kind of policies I wanted to look like, look at as it shaped um, kind of my engineering mind. So the bachelor's was in engineering, same with the master's, but a lot of the focus was on policy and the master's. Level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, that's interesting. It, it feels to me that, um, it's, it's not uncommon for people who are in the sciences to then say, Hey, if we want to make a difference in this, you know, whatever your in, particular interest might be that, that there's a policy piece that, 
that weaves its way in. So you made that transition in part for impact, right? You- Definitely. And I think I think where we're going to find our future solu- solutions is the blend of science and policy and and scientists being able to speak policy and policymakers being able to 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 hear and and understand what scientists are saying. I think that's going to be incredibly um, important as we move to the future. So I can absolutely relate as a f- originally a scientist and now a person that does mostly project management that that the skills transfer right so i they think do. um one of the things that that i hope that that we can inspire kids to understand as well as they come through the spur campus is that um an understanding of the science even if you aren't going to focus on that as your primary area of work mm-hmm. can really help you and the sort of scientific mindset can help you problem solve in whatever realm you you then work in definitely we need more problem solvers we do need more problem solvers. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, speaking of solving problems, I'm guessing that you do this on a daily basis, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the what is the job actually like? So you've, you've had this pathway and, um, and, and in some ways unconventional and juggling a lot of different competing priorities. And, and now you're here. What is, what is a, a, a week in the life look like as the director of the CWCB? I'd like to tell you any week was the same as another. I'd like to tell you any day would be the same as the day before. Um, that's never the case, which I think is actually works for me, where some days I buckle down and I answer hundreds of emails or I'm out speaking to people all day or I'm reading reports or getting ready for board meetings or or actually in in meetings all day. It, it varies. And I think that that's what works for me is that having a variety of um, situations to to address. Let's circle back for a second. So you're originally from Hawaii, yep. which is the other headwater state. Yes. Um, did that influence your interest in water? And how did you end up in Colorado from Hawaii? Um, definitely. I think as I reflect on um, kind of my upbringing and where I'm from, I've always had a sheer, uh, a very tight connectedness to water. Um, in Hawaii, a lot of it is salt water, but um, there's there's fresh water, and we all rely on fresh water. But I've I've always felt connected. But um, growing up in Hawaii helped because I feel like there was such an emphasis on being stewards, stewards of the land, stewards of of um, the environment, stewards of water, and um, I think we always knew water was life. We grew we grew up with that statement and um, recognizing both the positive and negative impacts of it, and um, and and uh, how it it can be used, but um, how it gives. And so I think that really shaped who I am and and my passion for this. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the last eighteen months mm-hmm. um, and uh, what you have learned or what has been exposed by us working our way through the impacts of COVID and and a global pandemic? How how has that influenced your work? One of the things that I've seen over the last 18 months and and is something that we've known for for a long time is that um, water and access to water, clean water is incredibly important. And so I think some of the things that has really reinvigorated me and and my work and the work that that we do focused on water is um seeing some of some of 
the differences across the country and um, specifically in rural areas or on sovereign tribal lands in terms of the access to clean water. And so I think um, that really has inspired me to be um, continually advocating and working um, with with folks all across the state, including rural areas where there's not always access to clean water, but especially on um, tribal reservation lands where the the stats that came out during COVID in terms of the numbers of um, indigenous peoples um, and the, the higher rates of COVID occurrence and death um, and the correlation of that to access to to clean drinking water or clean water or water in general, um, I think is something that as a nation, we need to continue to work on and move forward. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that we learned throughout the course of COVID. Of course, we're not through it yet, but I feel like we have learned a lot across um, a lot of different sectors around equity and and inequitable impacts of um, negative things and inequitable access to helpful and positive things. So um, I think that's important to recognize that water is no exception. Thank you. Let's talk just for a few minutes about your connection to the to the CSU Spur campus. So you've been connected to the Spur Water in the West Symposium for the last several years. So thank you again for engaging in that each year. Um, how, how do you see the Spur campus, the hydro building, which you know is focused on water? How do you see us being useful? Well, I think it goes back to that equity and diversity question, and really, um, really using <laughs> using all the resources that we have to get um, to build our future. And so, I think that um, providing the opportunity for a space for that is first and foremost in- incredibly important. Um, but really, bringing people into the fold, I think you the the spur is focused on that and and I think set up in an optimal way to 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 help me meet my goals. So you you do that for okay. me. So thank, thank you. Thanks. I will do our best. I mean the thing that that um is both good and sometimes a struggle for those of us who might not always be that patient <laughs> is that what we are hoping to do is engage young people in these career pathways and help show them this is, you can do this. This is how, um, this is the educational pathway. How can we help set you up for success? Um, and that that is a long game, right? That if, if we're engaging with a sixth grader, it's a while before they even graduate high school and let alone enter the workforce, let alone be tackling these problems. And yet we also see young people making a difference every day of their lives, influencing how the people around them are behaving or um, starting international movements around climate change when they're 16, for example. So um, I I try to remind myself that we're playing both games. Maybe it's both games at once. We have both timelines at at play. The the long game is is definitely the one we have to be focused on. And so personally, I, I try to mentor or work and learn from as many younger people as I can. So I think I'm I'm proud of um, the few that that I spend um, a lot of time with. We're going to wrap up. So is there um, one thing we'd like to do is make sure that our listeners can find you and your organization on social media. So can you tell us a little bit what the channels are you all are on and how folks can find you? 
Um, yes, we are at CWCB across the board. Yeah, yeah everywhere. At DNR. Okay. Um, and then our, our Instagram is Colorado Water Conservation underscore DNR. And we have a YouTube channel. You could search for us um, with CWCB. And then I'm my personal Twitter, not personal, my work Twitter is at CWCB Becky. We'll also link to that in our show notes so people can find you and follow your great work. Last thing is our spur of the moment question. Oh, no. So I know you do a lot of outdoor activity. If you could pick one thing that you could do for the rest of your life, which one would it be? I know it may seem surprising, Jocelyn, but I still play soccer. And I, if I can still play soccer when I'm 90, I'll be thrilled. <laughs> That's great. That's, that is not, <laughs> I expected you to say paddleboarding, but, but soccer <laughs> is great. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Until then, be well.